The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion listeners, I'm Vonnie Quinn. This week... Endorsements often can be very important, but the stuff of narratives actually tends to matter more. Jonathan Bernstein on primary season and... There's typically a limit to what even a vulnerable state will tolerate. Hal Browns on whether Russia's war on Ukraine has become a proxy war between the US and its allies and Russia. Later, Clara Ferreira Marquez on the strange sight of the Marcos family returning to Manila's presidential palace. First, though, a conversation about the monumental shift we're seeing in markets with Nir Kesar. So, Nir, is this market rational? I think it is. This looks to me like a classic repricing. And what I mean by that is I think the market is looking at the price tags on the stocks that it has had for a while. And it's just revisiting whether these prices make sense. And I think for some of these stocks, clearly these prices did not make sense. And the reason I say that is because two things. One is... When you look at the declines, they're not across the board. This is largely a large company, mostly growth phenomenon. When you look at the stocks that are getting hit the hardest, it's generally the stocks that are more expensive on a valuation basis. Mm. And also, separate from that, also the stocks that have the least amount of profitability. So the lower quality, high valuation stocks are getting hit the most. That started about a year ago. More recently, this has spread even to the high quality names. So you're seeing names like Facebook, Amazon, Netflix. These are hugely profitable companies, but also very expensive companies. And I think the market is just saying these prices are inappropriate and they need to come down. We're not seeing the same thing with companies that are cheaper. The value segment of the market has done pretty well. It's down too, but it's not down anywhere near where the growth names are. And all of this has happened in a relatively orderly fashion. There's a lot of liquidity in the market. People can buy and sell. So I think this is just a repricing. So that's where I have a little bit of trouble because there are a lot of comparisons to the dot-com bubble, for example. But is that fair? Because it seems to me like this isn't really an emperor has no clothes scenario like it was in 2000. Some of these companies, as you say, are very profitable. That's right. And I think the comparison is fair insofar as this is the first time that anything like this since the late 1990s has happened. From there, I think it does start to break down on a number of dimensions. One is that You know, these valuations, I don't think by any objective measure, were anywhere near as expensive as the dot-com peak. So from that perspective, I don't know that they're comparable. But as you say, Vani, the second thing is that it was a mixed bag. I mean, yes, you did have companies this time that didn't make any money, that were just trading on growth and expectations and so on. But the, the larger segment of that cohort, the Apples, the Microsoft, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world. These are hugely profitable companies. They just happen to be expensive, but they weren't going away. So I don't think you're going to have a situation where there's going to be a wipeout. They're just going to trade at lower multiple. So can these high growth stocks take this kind of beating and still be considered high growth? I think what remains to be seen is to what extent their financing is going to impact their growth. If some of these companies that hadn't yet gotten the profitability or some of the coronavirus lockdown sort of era stocks, you know, the Zooms, the Pelotons of the world, so on. 
To the extent that they needed financing in order to get to their growth potential, this could be a threat to them because, you know, a lot of investors have basically taken their money and gone home. For the bigger companies that are already established, it's hard to see how revaluing them is going to have any impact on their growth. I think ultimately what's going to be harder for them is that this is what investors are telling these companies, that we just no longer believe that you, Amazon, you, Facebook, or whoever can grow at the growth that they put up during the 2010s and in the last decade. And so, you know, that slower growth necessarily means that they deserve lower multiples. It's so interesting because it feels like we've been waiting for this for many years. I mean, it's been a 13-year bull market run at the very least, if not more than that. And you have to wonder if it is just because of the Fed turning or if this was just a moment waiting to happen and it's a convenient moment now. It's interesting to think about the timing of it. I've been thinking about what we can attribute this to. And I think ultimately the honest answer is we just don't know why these things happen when they uh, when they happen. Mm. This could have happened any time in the last three or four years, mm. if I'm being generous. But I think my, my best guess as to why it's happening now is that is simply when, when clouds gather, I think investors pay more attention to price and profits. And they don't when they're bullish. And I think right now there's just a lot of things to worry about. And that's what they appear to be doing now. At what point will these market declines impact the Fed's decision-making in the sense that multiples are coming in? That's probably a healthy thing to some degree. But does there come a point at which the stock market drop is one factor that the Fed takes more seriously? I don't think so. Um, Well, in in a couple of ways. One is, I think, we, we often analogize this moment to... Previous moments when the Fed has stepped in, dot-com, financial crisis, pandemic. Um, but the difference between now and those moments is in those moments, they didn't have to tackle inflation. Now that they're sitting on an inflation rate that's, that's, you know, that's the highest it's been in four decades, going back to the scary late 1970s, early 1980s, um, they don't really have a choice, I don't think. And I think I believe them when they say that they're taking this very seriously and they're going to get this inflation down. And I think what that basically means is that the Fed put is off the table. Investors don't look to us for help. If you want to overpay for companies, you're going to have to take the repricing, which is what they're doing now. So I I don't think that the Fed is going to come to their rescue. So, Nir, the real economy hasn't quite mirrored the capital markets over the last decade. (laughs) That's an understatement. But now, do the capital markets help engender a recession? Does it become the case that the capital markets do mirror the real economy eventually? Well, you know, it's interesting to think about because, you know, just as there was a bifurcation between the market and the economy during the darkest days of the pandemic, it looks like it's going the other way now. So if anything, I think you might continue to have a bifurcation between the economy and the market, but in the opposite direction. I think people might wonder, why is the market doing so poorly if the economy is still relatively healthy? And I think the answer is that they just don't track each other very well and that you should never look to the market as a proxy for what the economy is doing. Near case are there. Don't forget, listeners, do get in touch via Twitter at Vonnie Quinn or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. Opinions and comments always welcome. We have incrementally more data now on primary voting behaviour following Nebraska and West Virginia this week. And the Pennsylvania primary, among others, takes place Tuesday. We're joined by Jonathan Bernstein. What did we learn from the primaries this week in terms of what a Trump endorsement means, Jonathan? Well, after Trump got off to a good start in May in Ohio in the Senate campaign there, he had a mixed 
record this Tuesday. In West Virginia, there were two incumbent members of the House running against each other because of reapportionment. West Virginia lost the seat, and so that tossed two of their Republican members of the House against each other, and the one that Trump endorsed won pretty comfortably. On the other hand, in Nebraska, in the gubernatorial race there, Trump's candidate lost by several percentage points. Charles Herbster, yeah. Exactly. Now, the thing is that you can do sort of the win-loss ratio, you know, but it's complicated, right? We don't know how the candidate would have done if there was no Trump at all. Um, This was a candidate who was a very strong Trump supporter for Trump's entire political career, but also had been accused, credibly, of groping several women. Mm. Um, So, you know... If he gets no Trump endorsement, does he does he campaign at all? Does he do better? Um, does he do worse? You know, what what? It's very hard when political scientists study primary campaigns. It's extremely difficult to figure out some sort of baseline because you can't judge how much any particular factor influenced the outcome if you can't come up with a baseline if that hadn't happened. And right. So it- and the other thing about Nebraska is that <laughs> the Republican establishment there won. So their endorsement was not Trump's endorsement. And so you have to wonder, what about statewide Republican GOP institutions? Yeah. And, you know, the thing is that it's not that these are moderate Republicans who won that race. Just like in Ohio, you know, we had J.D. Vance, Trump's candidate, won, but the radical candidates who were seeking Trump's endorsement, trying to imitate Trump, took about 60, 65, 70 percent of the vote, depending on who you classify how. And so, you know, on the one hand, it's not as if Trump snaps his fingers and, and all the Republican voters say, oh, that's what we want. But on the other hand, it's a very radical party. Whether you attribute that to Trump, which is true in part, or say this is something that precedes Trump and only got sort of more so as a result of him, but also has a lot to do with Republican-aligned media. Well, you know, it's complicated. It is. And that brings us right back to Pennsylvania, where it's becoming really interesting in the last week of the race. It had been a race between Dr. Oz and former Bridgewater CEO David McCormick, who obviously was spending a fortune, a fortune of his own as well, emulating the Glenn Youngkin playbook. But suddenly we have Kathy Barnett getting two endorsements, one from the Club for Growth and one from the Susan B. Anthony list candidate fund PAC. She would be the first Republican black woman elected to the U.S. And she is on message right now when it comes to the dominant issue, which is abortion. What happens, Jonathan? Well, you know, one of the things that it tells you is that in these multi-candidate primaries, they can be very unstable. So you have here a situation where two candidates, Trump backing Dr. Oz, the TV celebrity doctor, you know, we're going at each other with a lot of money on TV attacking each other. And so a third candidate appears to have benefited. Now, we don't know how it's going to turn out. The latest polls seem to show pretty close to a three-way tie. Mm. But we've seen that happen before in elections where two candidates who have tons of money attack each other and the third candidate benefits. In this case, those endorsements came out after she had already moved up in the polls, spending very, very little money of her own Mm. or anybody on her behalf, while tons of money is coming in for the other two candidates. And then we should just point out that on the Democratic side of things, it's gotten a little clearer. John Fetterman seems to be the surefire win, even though he has his own problematic past, pointing a shotgun at an unarmed black jogger back in 2013. But he seems to be the candidate that they've chosen that has the best chance against Republicans. That seems to be the case, according to all the polling right now, that Fetterman, who's the lieutenant governor of the state, so 
he had run for Senate when he was small town, medium town mayor six years ago and got nowhere. The party was not interested in him. But once he proved himself as a statewide winner, the lieutenant governor, that gave him the statewide publicity and contacts and you know party support to apparently pull away from the other two candidates. Jonathan, what does it say about Joe Manchin's position in terms of legislation if the candidate that he endorsed lost in West Virginia? Should the Democrats heed this as a lesson somehow? Oh, I don't, I don't think. I mean, yeah, I don't think it really tells us anything. Manchin's position is strong in the Senate because he's the 50th vote. Mm. Um, and it doesn't matter. I, what, what we know about Manchin is that Democrats can't primary him. They have very little leverage over him. And I don't think that it really matters how popular he is in West Virginia. What really matters is that no Democrat other than Joe Manchin has any chance of holding that seat in the future. And so Democrats basically have to accept he is who he is. They get a lot of votes out of him on things like judges and executive branch confirmation and on some legislative uh, issues. And the ones that they don't get, there's really no other place for them to go. I have a question about the narrative at the moment as well. It's obviously, and for obvious reasons, started to center around abortion and women's rights. Is that what sways primaries? You know, it can. Primaries are not general elections. What often matters in primaries is how candidates differentiate from each other. If you're a primary voter, you're a little bit involved because many people don't vote in primaries at all. So you're paying some attention, but you probably don't know a huge amount about these candidates, especially in places where there's five, six, seven candidates on the ballot, which is the case in many of these places. And so you're looking for something, somebody that stands out for some reason. That's why endorsements often can be very important. Money spent is far more important in primary elections than general elections. But the stuff of narratives actually tends to matter more. So, you know, the idea that these two candidates in Pennsylvania in the Senate campaign are bashing each other, that's something that Republicans who are paying attention probably notice. Whereas in a general election, you're eventually going to find your party most of the time. But since there's no sort of place that you start from in a primary campaign if you're a voter, you're looking for some reason to vote for a candidate. And therefore, issues, endorsements, money, a good ad, stuff like that really can make more of a difference than it would in a general election. Are you watching anything else come Tuesday, Jonathan, or is it really just Pennsylvania? Uh, the Idaho gubernatorial, which Trump endorsed the lieutenant governor who's going to lose to the incumbent governor, apparently, mm. which didn't seem like the kind of endorsement to make if you're trying to maximize your reputation for influencing voters, but who knows? <laughs> I'm not sure that it's, that's It's very hard to know whether Trump is rational about this stuff or I was just going to say, I, I'm not sure that that's the calculation that's being made here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he tends to be impulsive, and, and it's very hard to figure out what, what exactly. You know, it could be just somebody knew how to flatter him, or he saw somebody on Fox News in the right moment, and that's why he made the decision. Jonathan Bernstein there. Don't forget to reach out with thoughts, suggestions, opinions. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. We're also available as a podcast. Just look us up on Apple or Spotify. Russia's war on Ukraine grinds on, prompting new questions, including whether the war is turning into a proxy war between the US and its allies and Russia. Let's get straight to Hal Brands, columnist and also professor of global affairs at Johns Hopkins University. So Hal, at what point does an intervention or aid or whatever you would have called this, at what point does it turn into a proxy war? 
proxy war is an intervention where most of the, the fighting and, frankly, the dying is done by a third party. And so if the United States were to use Ukrainian forces to inflict damage on the Russian military, for instance, without directly fighting Russian military itself, that would be an example of a proxy war. Was this a proxy war from the beginning? I think the initial idea was to try to help Ukraine maintain as much of its sovereignty and independence as possible. What became clear, though, was that the Ukrainian resistance was very effective, that the Russian military was vulnerable and overextended, and that the United States and its allies thus had a chance to inflict a pretty severe cost on the Russians simply by helping the Ukrainians fight better. And I think that's really the genesis of the, of the situation where we are today, where the Pentagon has essentially acknowledged that what we're doing is trying to use the Ukraine war to weaken Russia's capabilities over time. Right. And so you wrote a conspiracy of silence is necessary for any kind of proxy war, but the U.S. isn't being particularly silent about this war. Does that make it more ethical, let's say? I don't know that it's a question of ethics. I think it's a, it's a question of prudence. And so the reason it's important to stay quiet about a proxy war is that there's typically a limit to what even a vulnerable state will tolerate. And they're more likely to tolerate having a proxy war waged against them if their face isn't being rubbed in it by the other side. And I think this is why it's, it's damaging to have leaks about the role that U.S. intelligence may or may not be playing in, in certain Ukrainian military operations, because it makes the fact of the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine harder to ignore, and it potentially ratchets up the humiliation Putin may feel at the damage he's suffering there. Mm. We can look to examples from the past that have been obvious proxy wars. This is, I think, a different kind of proxy war. It certainly didn't start out, as you said, as a proxy war. It's just become one over time. And that's a little bit the problem, that motivation can change over time. So what's the escalation from here? Well, we don't know yet. There are Russian escalation options. And so uh, if Putin really wanted to try to put a stop to NATO countries arming and resupplying Ukraine, he could, for instance, target those countries militarily. He could try to ramp up the efforts to interdict supplies coming into Ukraine across its land borders. He could do even something more drastic. He could use chemical weapons or battlefield nuclear weapons to try to turn the conflict in his favor or resolve it on his terms. You know, we don't know whether he will do so or not. I think the situation could become more dangerous, though, if he realizes that Russian forces are on the verge of losing in Ukraine and worries that a defeat in Ukraine could potentially spell the end of his regime. How is the average American citizen supposed to feel about this proxy war? I mean, on the one hand, there's a lot of support for it. Give us some kind of matrix for how we should weigh the war. Americans seem to be pretty happy with the way that the war is going, which is not to say, of course, that they approve of the destruction of Ukraine. But uh, U.S. military and economic aid to Ukraine is popular on a bipartisan basis, both in Congress and in the population which indicates to me that Americans see Russia as a military and geopolitical threat. They don't like the fact that a big aggressive autocracy is beating up on a smaller democracy next door. And so they favor giving Ukraine the help it needs to defend itself, whether they see it as a proxy war or simply a case of defending a vulnerable democracy or helping that democracy defend itself. I can't really say, but the overall policy has quite a great deal of approval. Hal, what's the danger that Putin turns elsewhere next? I mean, he obviously has puppet regimes in several former Soviet territories and states, but at some point he could try something new and pick a new former Soviet state to invade. Does the US then get involved there? 
Putin has his hands full at the moment. He may want to stir up trouble in Moldova or take a poke at the Baltic states or something like that, but it's going to be pretty difficult as long as his army is so fully committed and is faring so poorly in Ukraine. And so I think the danger is less one that Putin decides to launch another war elsewhere than this war escalates perhaps in dangerous ways. And so that's the scenario that I would worry more about. Mm. And then I guess, you know, final question that needs to be examined is, are proxy wars successful? Has the U.S. waged a successful proxy war in the past? Some of them succeed, some of them fail. It really depends on the setting. The United States uh, failed utterly to overthrow Fidel Castro's regime via proxy invasion uh, at the Bay of Pigs in 19. 19- it succeeded beyond its wildest expectations and in, in helping the Afghan Mujahideen push the Soviets out of Afghanistan in the 1980s. There, there's no hard and fast rule that says that uh, some fail and some succeed. It, it typically depends on the strength of the forces involved, their level of commitment, how well supported they are. And so there's a lot of contingency in these sorts of things. We leave those questions there for now. Our thanks to Hal Brands. By the way, do get in touch. Comments and opinions are always welcome. Find me at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. We're also available as a podcast. Find us on Apple or Spotify. Now to the Philippines. 36 years after dictator Ferdinand Marcos fled to Hawaii amid a people's revolution, his son was elected president of the nearly 110 million people strong Philippines with nearly 60% of the vote. Happy to have Clara Ferreira Marquez join us now from Singapore. Quite the extraordinary turn of events, Clara. Explain to us the context for this election. The selection is coming at the end of a really long campaign by the Marcos family to reinstate the name, to rehabilitate the name, and to put a Marcos back in the Malacanang, in the presidential palace. And it's been an extraordinary success. The ingredients of it have been, to a large extent, nostalgia, social media, the fact that for many Filipinos, the Fruits of democracy have not really filtered down. You know, for many of them, it's really the same families in power, the same oligopolies, um, the same economic troubles. And also the fact that this is a very young electorate. Remember, about half the electorate is under 40. So it's been the combination that has allowed Ferdinand Marcos Jr., known as Bongbong, to be elected in a landslide. And it is quite extraordinary. His mother, Imelda Marcos, the person that was known around the world for her wardrobe and particularly her shoes, obviously, voted in a Chanel suit and carrying a rosary beads. Is this another example of a populist candidate getting into office? Not just another populist. I mean, it's very unusual to see, not unusual to see dictators' sons come back, but it is unusual to see them come back after a hiatus of this length and in particular after a period of democracy, uh, problematic perhaps, but certainly democracy. It's extraordinary how fast they've done it. So Ferdinand Marcos' father died. They returned very shortly after his death. And Marcos Jr. was elected to Congress a couple of years afterwards. And since then, a number of people in the family, including his sister and Imelda Marcos herself, and they've since worked to really gloss over some of the more problematic aspects of the regime. So the killing and torturing of thousands of opponents and, of course, the plundering of states. So $10 billion and much of it still missing today. Really, the human rights abuses were phenomenal, but it continued after Marcos was out of office and had flown to Hawaii. 
Most recently, President Duterte has had some controversial practices. Amnesty actually says that his war on drugs was, and I'm quoting here, a systematic killing of the urban poor and a large-scale murdering enterprise. And it appears now that since his daughter is vice president, the two dynasties have come together and there won't be any reckoning for any crimes or potential crimes that have happened in the Philippines' history. So... Duterte has certainly had a lot of excesses and is well known for his inflammatory comments. But his his period in the presidency and his period as mayor of Davao was nowhere near the brutality of the Marcos regime, of course. But he has, as you say, enabled it. And I think he's enabled it not only through the tactics he's used and absolutely devastating drug war, which had very little impact on drugs and plenty of impact on extrajudicial killing, but he had, for example, legitimized talk of martial law, uh, something which for the Philippines brings back horrific memories of the late Marcos period. And I would also just distinguish Duterte from his daughter. So Duterte has not formally, either Bongbong Marcos or his daughter, who in fact won by an even higher margin than Marcos himself, but the vice president is elected separately in the Philippines, so she has her own power base, and she is trying to be a different person to her father. I mean, how successful she will be, of course, is a different question entirely. Let's get to policy because, in fact, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. didn't really campaign. Do we know what his platform will be, given that he has governed before he was a congressman and a governor, in fact? Well, I mean, the the, the actual absence of policy is, is, is sort of a, a screaming omission here. And um, as congressman, you know, through his time in office, he has really done very little. He has an absolutely negligible legislative record. And his campaign, as you say, was marked again by the absence of policy. He talked about sort of motherhood and apple pie issues. He talked about national unity, things that are very difficult to disagree with. I mean, who's going to disagree with the idea that you need national unity? His social media feeds are really interesting. Because again, complete absence of policy, but lots and lots of black and white footage of Imelda and Ferdinand Marcos reminiscences of childhood, really trying to sort of create a nostalgia, a rose-tinted view of the past. And a lot of Filipinos don't remember it. Uh, Filipino history is not mandatory, even in high school. So, you know, it's very easy, given as well the grip that social media has in the Philippines, it's very easy to spread a biased narrative. The programs he has on YouTube, these little sort of glossily produced segments, are all the sort of glamour of Imelda Marcus. She was very beautiful. Yes. So it's sort of 1960s glamour, the Marcuses and the Nixons, the Marcuses and the Reagans. It's all like, you're really appealing. There was a very interesting dynamic between the United States and the Philippines for a long time, but much time again has passed. What will the dynamic be now between the US and the Philippines, particularly regarding the South China Sea with China's heavy military presence there? Again, we don't know a lot about Sergeant Marcos Jr.'s policies here, so Bongbong hasn't provided a huge amount of detail. We do expect he'd be more friendly towards China than uh, Lenny Robredo, who would have been a lot more pro-US, so she was his main opponent in the presidential race. But probably he will be less pro-China or less sort of aggressively pro-China than Duterte. I think um, he will be much more pragmatic. There is a need for investment, a need for infrastructure that will require China, and he will probably aim to bury a lot of the issues that have been so controversial. But it's just really striking how absent policy has been, even an economic policy, for example. Remember, the Philippines is coming out of an absolutely brutal pandemic, which has had awful effects on human capital and indeed employment. Well, and inflation, although it's not quite as high as some other countries in Asia or Southeast Asia, and also... 
we have policymakers saying that GDP needs to grow at least 6% for the next five to six years just to help repair the debt it took on to fight COVID-19. Now, it did take on debt to fight COVID-19. I suppose that is a little bit of a consolation. But at the same time, the central bank does have questions and there's going to be a new central bank governor as well. The previous governor's term expires. So yes, the, the central bank governor is very well regarded. You leave next year. I mean, in terms of a lot of those things, we do expect there to be some continuity with the Duterte uh, presidency. And Duterte, for all his bluster, actually had quite competent and technocratic economic management. He pushed through some pretty important reforms in terms of foreign ownership, um, fiscal reforms to make the Philippines a lot more competitive with his neighbours. I think the key thing about the numbers in the Philippines is that they look very good on paper. It all looks very high. Mm. The Philippines is one of the fastest growing economies in Asia. The reality is that just hasn't translated into a genuinely competitive economy, an economy that attracts sufficient investment members. This is a huge market. It should be uh, bringing in a lot more. And it's unclear that without a very sort of forceful vision, indeed a, a competent vision, that the Marcos presidency can do that. In terms of markets, overseas investors did sell stocks, but the Philippine peso gained. What are investors liking about Marcos Jr. that helped strengthen the peso? Or, or was it for other reasons, do you think? There is some hope, perhaps, that he will bring in or at least continue some of the reforms that were in fiscal terms, for example, some of the infrastructure investments. He certainly talked about logistics, very vague terms, but all the same. People may be hoping for some continuity there. I mean, there is very little to hang on to, I have to say. Mm. In the commentary that I've read, Clara, it does seem to be the poster child for troll farm elections. Duterte's victory back in 2016 credited, in part at least, to disinformation spread by troll farms. Did that happen this time or was it a genuine victory? victory on the part of Mong Mong or Marcus Jr.? It's a genuine landslide victory, but I think it is really important to look at the role of disinformation here and at what we can learn from the Philippines and apply elsewhere. So one of the things that's really notable about the Philippines, obviously, is extensive social media use. And not just extensive social media use, but extensive use of influencers, so people who guide the opinion of others. And we know from surveys that Filipinos are much more likely to follow that and to use that to guide, for example, political opinions than other countries. It makes it so, so powerful. A young electorate and a lot of time on social media, one of the highest usage rates, I think, globally. And then it was the very clever use of social media by the Marcos campaign. So, of course, the Manu Robredo campaign also used social media, but they were, I think, a little bit less nimble. And the Marcos campaign, on the other hand, was absolutely clear about the message they were going to put across, nostalgia, black and white footage, pictures of Bong Bong walking through fields with Sarah Duterte, sort of with these very bland slogans about together we rise again. I mean, that is very, very effective when you're dealing with a young electorate. Also, there's absolutely nothing in place by the government to fight disinformation. And that's quite different to places like Brazil, again, been a big, big issue, but a lot of government efforts have been put in place. As you say, Clara, it's that strange combination you don't see too often of a very healthy electorate in terms of turnout or interest in the election, but not so much perhaps interest in the substance or the platforms of the candidates. It's a performance. Like People love the election because it's zero policy and it's all personalities. It's all about the pizzazz, celebrities, like Filipino social media is full of everyone going to vote and all the celebrities showing that because they sort of mark your finger, a bit like in India, they mark your nail. Yes. And so people are sort of showing off the finger and it's a performance. I mean, what concerns me is the complete absence of policy of any sort. I thought it was really shocking, actually. 
Clara Ferreira Marquez. We are now choosing to end all conversations, not with you though. As always, we love to hear from you at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or send your thoughts to vquinn at bloomberg.net. And by the way, Bloomberg Opinion with Vonnie Quinn is available as a podcast on Apple or Spotify. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT G-O-A-T Acronym Stands for Greatest of All Time As in Spaghetti Sandwiches for Dinner They're my fave Dad You're the GOAT You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same Visit AdoptUSKids.org Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Adopt US Kids and the Ad Council